everyone, and welcome to This Time Will Be Different. Today, I have a very special guest with me. Welcome, Mike Grantis. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Reza. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Excited for the conversation. Me too, man. We're going to have a great convo about blockchain, AI. Uh, hopefully, you'll teach me a bit about Solana DeFi too, because I'm a noob. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a noob with FOMO, so I'm in a dangerous position. It's uh, not a good spot to be in, but hopefully you can help me out there. But for anyone who may not be familiar with you, how would you introduce yourself? You know, I'm just an enthusiast about the blockchain and AI space. You know, I'm the managing partner, co-founder at a venture capital firm called Contango Digital Assets. We invest pretty much at the intersection of blockchain and AI. We've been uh, investing for the past two and a half years. We've got about 60 projects in our portfolio at the time being. And, um, you know, we're in the process of raising a new fund. I don't want to talk too much about it, but same same kind of core focus at the intersection of blockchain and AI. And I think, look, there's so much to be excited about in this space right now. I think, you know, some more interest is starting to come back into the ecosystem. And uh, I think the next few years are going to be very bright for this this real intersection of these two kind of juggernaut new technologies. I think so, too. It's... um. It, it's kind of just like, like you said, these two juggernauts just like running together now when <laughs> hopefully yeah. that builds up a little more momentum than either of them could uh, individually. So Absolutely. what were you doing? Um, sorry. I was just going to say, look, I think both technologies on their own have kind of civilization changing scale. And I think they both will evolve in parallel, but there's going to be a lot of crossover. And, you know, and so AI can support crypto in, in different ways and crypto can support AI in different ways. And we can kind of talk about these these intersections and how they both might support each other. But I think on mass, they're just multipliers for, for each other. And, you know, I think it was uh, Peter Thiel had a quote, uh, AI is communist, whereas crypto is libertarian. And so they provide these really interesting counterweights to each other and, and kind of, uh, you know, attention that might help pull the entire industry forward. I was going to do a little like foreplay, like, you know, tell me your origin story and stuff, but you got me geeked on AI. So let's just dive into it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> cool. um, so are you familiar with this narrative kind of floating around right now? Uh, like I've seen it on bank lists. I think Martin Shkreli brought it up on an episode he did of the show that AI agents, you know, when they become autonomous and start, you know, pursuing their own goals are going to use cryptocurrency uh, as their currency. Are you familiar with this? Not specifically what, what uh, Martin Scarelli had said, but absolutely that is a thesis I believe in. I mean, I think when you extrapolate the amount of work that we're going to be offloading to decentralized or to you know autonomous agents in the AI space, if you look at what currency would probably make the most sense for them to transact in, it would be digitally native, it would be decentralized, most likely it would be internet native. So I think the, the the logical conclusion to come to would be that AI agents would use a form of cryptocurrency. I can highly doubt we're ever going to see AI agents signing SAF transactions, sorry, signing um, you know SWIFT transactions and opening up their own you know traditional bank accounts. I think it's going to be more wallet based and crypto focused for sure. Yeah, it's a super cool thesis, and I'm not going to lie, I was pretty skeptical about it until I started. I started doing a bunch of research into it this week because I'm writing an article right now about this narrative, and I was super skeptical. Mostly skeptical because I was like, "There's." So here's where my skepticism comes from. My skepticism comes from the fact that I don't believe that anyone right now can predict what characteristics AI will look for in money 
So it's impossible to build currency for AI when we can't predict really what they're going to be looking for. So then taking that and looking at, you know, a bunch of AI coins gaining 100% over the past 30 days, I'm like, this seems a little like misplaced. Like none of these are going to be the currency for AI. But in my pessimism, I went to the source. I went to the AI to actually talk to the AI. (laughs) (laughs) I went into ChatGPT and I was like, hey, when AI agents are autonomous and able to pursue their own goals, what characteristics will they look for in a currency? Uh, mm. And I didn't put any leading, I didn't, I didn't mention crypto or blockchain or anything. And this thing just spits out, like just starts describing like Ethereum and Solana. It's like, well, we would need smart contracts. We would need decentralization. We would need censorship resistance. We need privacy. Mm-hmm. And that kind of just like blew my mind a little bit because I really didn't feed it anything about crypto. And the fact that it just started like ranting about crypto, I was like, wait, maybe there is something here. And like, no, I don't really think that any of the currencies out right now are going to be like the de facto crypto that AI uses. I mean, hopefully it's one of my bags that they choose, but <laughs> I am taking the narrative a lot more seriously now after doing this deep dive. With this narrative in mind, do you think that the excitement around AI and blockchain and crypto, do you think that this excitement is because we're beginning to figure out what this like currency for AI might look like? Or is this more so just like leaps and bounds being made in the general crypto AI industry? I think that's a really good question. I do think there's some level of of hype and hysteria kind of coming into the market that is speculative. But I also think there is just a massive amount of progress happening within the space. And I can give you an example, like zero knowledge machine learning is something that's making leaps and bounds of progress for a long time, kind of zero knowledge, maybe a decade ago was was very theoretical. I guess in the past decade, since it has now come to prominence through cryptocurrency, it's starting to gain a little bit more traction in the AI space as well as a potential way of of training AI data sets with, you know, fully homomorphic encryption or encryption on both sides. And so I think these kind of parallel tracks of technological advancement are now starting to find their way weaving into each other in ways that they can both kind of co-evolve and and provide value to each other. So there's some amount of hype and hysteria, but I think the underpinnings of that are because there is real technological progress being made at an incredible clip. It's kind of like Bitcoin and like the banking, the unbanked narrative, you know, like it's, there's like the banking, the unbanked narrative and that like speculatively propels Bitcoin, but like Bitcoin doesn't really bank the unbanked like on the ground necessarily you know like people aren't right well i mean that's not fair i know that there are people uh i know that there's like a decent sized african community that actually does use bitcoin and and south american and central american i think you know we're very lucky in the the developed world to not have to worry about things like hyperinflation or stability of our national currency but what we're seeing kind of on a global stage is that those regions that have currencies that might be a little bit less stable or might be more prone to hyperinflation or distortion or corruption, they're starting to be the ones that are that are flocking into Bitcoin. Actually, Bitcoin just hit a new all-time high in the Turkish lira because their currency is is hyperinflating and it's down 65% this year. You know, so there's real product market fit being found in regions all over the world that are less stable than, you know, the ones that we call home. Yeah, I forget that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, truly, truly found product market fit. Absolutely. 
Yeah, you get lost in the um, the Bitcoin maxi, ETH maxi dialogue sometimes. It's easy to mm -hmm. uh, lose track of like the real people that you're actually trying to help with the stuff. Hey, man. Actually, I just spoke to somebody that, um, you know, he doesn't necessarily need the currency. He had a big exit, ended up buying a place in Costa Rica, kind of lives off the land now as... You know, I call it exited the matrix. He's kind of he's kind of one. But he was telling me about an application used all over Central America called Bitcoin Jungle that runs on the Lightning Network, and people are paying for their local groceries. They're you know paying at restaurants. He says almost everything he spends is Bitcoin just through this application on the on the Lightning Network. And so I think you know in different pockets of the world they might find product market fit in different ways. Some places might be using you know. Uh, Jack Mahler's strike. Some places might be using this Bitcoin jungle. However, the underlying payment technology underpinning all of them is, is Bitcoin. And so there might be these regional examples of how it finds product market fit, but the underlying technology is really what's driving that progress. That's super interesting. I had no idea there were, um, is being so widely used that there was product market fit like that. You know, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. would love to talk I to think this guy. <laughs> I think it's no. just getting started. Like we, I mean, as much as people that are in the space want to talk about a things like Ethereum or other smart contract platforms finding product market fit, there's a lot that's still very speculative, right? The whole NFT bubble craze, trust me, I find a ton of inherent value in NFTs and I'm not a detractor to, to that technology at all. But I think the first hype cycle was really, you know, profile pictures. I, I think, you know, DeFi has found somewhat product market fit, but only with a very niche, you know, trader audience. And so what is what is that kind of catalyst moment going to look like for things like Bitcoin or things like, uh, sorry, Ethereum or, or even Solana? I mean, Solana signed a partnership with, I think it was Visa to start settling Visa transactions in USDC on Solana. So that's a massive, massive kind of tectonic shift in the way credit card companies are doing payments on crypto rails, right? So these things are still early. I think even Bitcoin is still kind of finding its legs in different regions of the world. But you know, as time goes on, people will find more creative ways to to use these technologies, as they're really just kind of new digital primitives. So there's a lot to be excited about. I'm tempted just to dive into um, Solana questions, but you did bring up something on our pre-call, it was super interesting and I have questions for. So so what is the most exciting or what are some things that are really exciting you at this sort of intersection between AI and blockchain uh, before we dive into the, the Solana DeFi ecosystem? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I've been down a super deep rabbit hole over the past kind of m month or two. And it's feeling a lot like the rabbit hole I went down when I first found Bitcoin in, in 2016. And there's a project at the intersection of crypto and AI. It's called BitTensor. You know, full disclosure, I'm invested in it. I'm not a seed investor and Contango doesn't necessarily have a position. I have a personal position, but really it's this peer-to-peer -peer intelligence market. And so I guess if I could take a step back to explain it, what Bitcoin did was it, it gave proof of concept to the fact that we could build the world's largest supercomputer in a decentralized fashion uh, using this technology called the blockchain. And today, the Bitcoin network has more compute power than the largest 500 supercomputers on earth combined. So truly has proven that concept. It also drives competition to find the lowest cost energy or lowest cost compute. 
So we have these two incredible factors in Bitcoin that, yes, we, we can create the world's largest supercomputer, but we can also drive the cost of compute down because everybody is individually looking for the lowest cost compute for themselves, economically, selfishly, to, to make the most rewards. Well, what BitTensor did was they took this idea and they kind of flipped it on its head for machine learning. And so with Bitcoin, we, we add all of this compute power into the network, but all it's really doing is kind of solving these arbitrary math problems to try and win a lottery or a block reward. But that math that it's doing doesn't have any inherent value in, its, in and of itself. What BitTensor said was, what if we create this proof of work network where these computers are adding compute power to the network, but that compute is going towards training large language models or training, you know, different models or compute, they're called subnets on the network to perform different tasks. And what if anybody could create a subnet and add that kind of compute paradigm, I guess, you know, image generation or text generation or, you know, internet scraping, price prediction, anybody could create a subnet for any of these different kind of niches. And these subnets could then speak to each other and train off each other's data. And so you get this kind of network of networks that uses a distributed compute network to find low-cost compute to build a massive kind of supercomputer with a bunch of different decentralized large or you know uh, machine learning models and you know what you what you hopefully eventually will get to is some some you know rendition of agi or artificial general intelligence but i think the paradigm that they've come into it with is you know, is a profound change from anything that I've seen, you know, recently since since kind of the, uh, you know, the launch of Ethereum, for example, or, um, you know, or Bitcoin. So help me wrap my head around this a little bit more. So the, who are the, um, like, what is a user doing in Block Tensor? You know what I mean? Like, how am I, like, let's say like, okay, I'm sorry, BitTensor. Let's say mm -hmm. I'm like all in, I want to contribute in some way like am i running a node or like what is what actions can i do so there's a number of different ways to contribute i guess there'd be four real real roles there's you could either just buy tau which is the local uh or which is the native currency you can stake that tau to a validator so there, the different roles would be there's validators that are asking questions to miners miners are running machine learning models and answering those validators and the validators are ranking the answers of the miners to see which miner has the best model that produces the best output for the question that i asked there are subnet owners so at the there's kind of at the top there's subnet owners i think on the network there's around 30 subnets at the moment i might be mistaken but each subnet does a, a, a different or is responsible for training models to do a different thing. So maybe that's, you know, scraping of information off, off the internet. Maybe that is image generation. Uh, so the kind of generative AI models like, like Midjourney kind of, maybe it's text generation or text prompting. And so there's a bunch of different subnets. Different miners can upload their model to these, these different subnets if they think they have a model that can produce really good results or I guess correct results. And the validators on each different subnet would be essentially asking questions to all of those models and getting responses. I have exactly. a question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so am I understanding subnets correctly? That So like a subnet is like a, a sub neural network that is 
like maybe only focusing on like image generation and there might be one that's only focusing on i don't know like answering questions so they're sort of like yeah or price prediction absolutely absolutely so now kind of having people upload their people upload their own like code let's call it their own like version of a like image generator and then you're kind of like optimizing for who's got the best versus on like who's achieving like their version of a block reward sort of absolutely and and the reward for providing a model that executes well on a given task is that it gets paid out in tau so the validators are ranking the results of these miners the miner with the best result gets paid out the highest percentage of tau and until the lowest and the validators are also being ranked by each other so there's this kind of v trust or validator trust score which essentially ranks does this validator's results match with the other validator's results or does it track with the rankings that the other validators gave to miners so you're cr kind of creating this network model where trust is built through this community of validators and the validators are ranking answers from these different miners and there's economic incentive behind all of it so essentially what the subnet owners uh, are doing is they're writing the incentive language to teach validators what is the best answer what, what are what are the valid answers uh, or the the answers with the highest correctness that these validators should be looking for from miners so you get this kind of owners are you, doing that you, yeah you get this kind of survival of the fittest with all these different miners running different different models and they're all incentivized to compete with each other to create the best be hypothetical best model so it's this uh really interesting survival of the fittest type of model and then where it gets super meta is where these different subnets can then work together with other subnets to help train their models. So I'll give you an example just from a recent community call. There's a subnet called Toshi, which is price prediction model. And they're working with another subnet that is a data scraping model to scrape a bunch of price information from the internet from a bunch of different assets and filter that into the training set of the price prediction models. So they're working together to kind of create information that helps each of their uh, models train. It's, I, it's crazy. It's yeah, pretty wild. It's super cool. Am I correct in thinking then that this kind of like decentralizes the alignment issue too? Like if each of these neural network, or sorry, each of these subnet owners are like defining what like their best answer or their right answer is. That kind of takes like eases some of my concerns about like one person feeding all the information to the AI, you know, like the, yeah. the end all be all AI that's like this is right and this is wrong. Well, the other the other thing is if the community isn't aligned with the way a incentive uh, a certain subnet is building its incentive mechanism, another subnet can spin up to do something similar, and miners can reward can can move to that new subnet. So there's no kind of lock-in to a specific subnet owner essentially there's game theoretic incentive for everybody to act you know with integrity within the ecosystem or else they're not going to be getting that economic return in tau distributions this is really cool are you familiar <laughs> with um and by the way i have to i have to give the disclaimer that i've only been looking into this for a few months so <laughs> i'm not very new to it are you familiar with EAC or effective accelerationism? It's in a lot of Twitter no. bios. Uh, it's kind of like a 
counter movement that's been growing on Twitter, counter movement to effective altruism. Or I think that's where the meme started, but it's more counter to like AI alignment. Uh, they're basically mm. like the school of thought is that we should not be worried about AI alignment and AI safety issues, and we should just go full speed ahead and build it as fast as we can and not worry about the repercussions, really. Mm. And like, this sounds like an EAC dream uh, to me, because it's <laughs> like you're like incentivizing the acceleration of AI, financially incentivizing the acceleration of AI in like a really direct way that's super cool. Yeah, but I think the biggest distinction here is that it's incentivizing its development in a decentralized way. So there's no kind of uh, root organization behind make, pulling all the strings to do all the different model weights. Everybody's creating their own model weights, adding them to the network. The really interesting thing about the way validators score miners is that they don't care about the input. They don't care about what the model looks like. All they care about is the output. And I think that's a really intelligent way to look at this. Because you might have a proprietary model that you, you know, want to keep safe that you've been training and spent a lot of money training. So you don't want to show what's under the hood, but you want to participate in this, this network for the incentive for the incentives that are inherent in providing valuable information or intelligence. So you can add this model to the network when minor or when in validators ask questions to your miner, all they're really scoring is the output. And so if you create a model, regardless of how you create this model, if you create a model that's that outputs answers that are generally accepted by the community, that will yield you high results. The, the other thing about building this AI in a decentralized way is that it opens up ownership for so many more people than those who would own centralized AI. If you think about it, OpenAI is beholden to its shareholders in Microsoft. And, it you know, it is closed AI. <laughs> in the, in the, it's closed for-profit AI. So when you think about it, there's only a small subset of these owners that might not even be users of the ecosystem or the system that are disproportionately accruing all the value that is created by this ecosystem. Whereas in a decentralized model, for example, like BitTensor, anybody that owns Tau directly benefits from the sum of all the knowledge that is created on BitTensor. So as BitTensor grows, all you need to do to be kind of pulled up with the economic value of the, the ecosystem is to be a holder or a staker of Tau. And so this opens up the door for so many more people to directly benefit from the you know world of opportunity that lies ahead with AI, as opposed to the kind of small subset of people that will benefit from centralized AI. And this is a layer one? It is now. Um, they originally were building on Polkadot as a parachain and eventually made the decision to to kind of uh, fork off on their own and, and build their own chain. That's super cool. I'm definitely going to do some research into this, see, uh, see what's going on. I don't yeah, there's a lot to... the <laughs> There's, um, well, I think the other really cool thing is they, they take so much from Bitcoin. Even if you look at, you know, uh, bittensor.com, if you look at their white paper, it looks eerily similar to the Bitcoin white paper, you know, peer to peer intelligence market is, is what they call it. And, you know, you look at the way they did tokenomics, it's 21 million, just like Bitcoin. There's a four year halving cycle, just like Bitcoin. There was no pre-mine, just like Bitcoin. Um, kind of no, 
large VC capital that that was able to to scoop up large swaths of this tau before it was publicly available. So they've done things very much with this kind of Bitcoiner mindset, this this decentralization from day one type of mindset, which I think is is very noble. And you know, really, you know, in the way that Bitcoin, every Bitcoin is tied to electric energy that is fed through the system. So every Bitcoin was produced using large amounts of electrical energy. In the same way, every tau on the network was created by peer-to-peer intelligence. So it's kind of almost proof of of intelligence or proof of data input into the system. So it's really cool. It's not just kind of a, a proof of stake, you know, chain with, with no inherent value. It's like proof of uh, lack of humanity, you know, like prove you are not human, <laughs> the opposite of a captcha. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the interesting thing about about BitTensor is like, as I said, they don't care about the input of the model. So if, if you could type fast enough, you could be <laughs> the model, right? Like you could produce the, the answer. Um, I'm in the AI arena competing with the AI. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't think you'll do very well, but uh, yeah, neither, neither would I. I want to talk to you a bit about Solana DeFi. And mm-hmm. let me give some context for this conversation. So I am a recovering ETH maxi. Um, <laughs> not necessarily. I, I just, I'm, I've been in crypto for a while. I like all the shit. <laughs> And, um, but I have very little experience on Solana. I've used DeFi on ETH. I was like, you know, was here for DeFi summer, saw the huge impact that had on ETH as a whole and just crypto as a whole. And I'm starting to feel like we're going to see something similar happen on Solana, but I don't really know anyone who's on the ground, you know, boots on the ground, on the chain, actually like using stuff on Solana, using the different DeFi products out there. So really curious to hear your opinion about like the current state of DeFi on Solana. And if you think that I'm right in this assumption that we are going to see sort of a DeFi boom over there. I would generally agree with your assumption. Now, I would caveat that by saying I'm not the most boots on the ground. Like I'm not just a kind of degen DeFi trader. Essentially, what we're doing at Contango is we're looking for, you know, high value ideas and, and, you know, founders that we can back and we believe in. Um, we're kind of chain agnostic. However, we do see this groundswell in, in the Solana ecosystem that's, you know, really interesting. So you kind of got to look at where the developers are going uh, and where the capital is flowing. And I think Solana is doing a lot of things right. You know, they've created this hyper fast settlement layer that is perfect for something like DeFi. I mean, people, regardless if you're using an L2 or even an L3 on, on Ethereum, you know, in some cases you're paying double, triple, five times the gas that you would pay on a Solana transaction or more. The other thing is what Solana does very well is this kind of global state. And so creating, you know, consensus, you know, in this global state, it's kind of picture perfect for traders and it's built almost with with traders in mind i think you know in a lot of ways the first technology to bring an idea to light doesn't necessarily always be the technology that wins out over time if you look at things like netscape or uh, napster or kind of like the, the 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 first internet browsers you might bring an idea to the to the public that gets iterated on over time and eventually perfected by by someone else. I'm not saying that's necessarily Solana to Ethereum. I'm just saying there are some things that Solana does very well that 
with the current architecture of Ethereum, it's tough to compete. The other thing that Ethereum or that Solana does very well is they make it extremely easy for developers to build. They've got an incredible kind of uh, developer toolkit and, you know, rich library of APIs. And what we found time and time again is that developers just tend to, to be flocking to um, Solana. I mean, it's a more difficult language. Rust is, is inherently a more difficult language to learn than Solidity. But those that kind of take that leap to learn the language end up finding there's so much more functionality with that language and so many more things you can build with a more complete language that is Rust. That's interesting. I imagine it creates sort of like a more of a cult-like following around the developers too. You know how like if you have to learn something harder than other people, you kind of like, you get this like mutual respect for the other people. Inner like circle. It's like, like a frat fraternity, you know? It's like, yeah. we all went through the hazing of learning this language. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, like we I think you're absolutely right. we don't share with other developers. No, it's, it's so, you know, it's going to be interesting to look back at this kind of, this emergence of cryptocurrency and all of the cult-like tribalism that we're seeing in these early days, you know, I think that will eventually start to die out or dissipate. I think people will start to realize that it's not necessarily the chain that's the most important. It's, you know, the idea in the community. However, if one kind of L1 ecosystem does a great job of fostering that community, of making tools, making things accessible, and as you said, if there's this barrier to entry that makes you a little bit higher on the, the, the status totem pole than somebody else. All of these things are kind of social dynamics that might lead to these tribalist, these, you know, tribalistic tendencies. But it's just going to be really interesting to see how these things play out. When I think about my concerns around Solana, it's like mostly stuff from the last bull market, which I don't even, is honestly stuff that I didn't do a lot of due diligence into. It's stuff I kind of took at face value, you know, like lack of decentralization when compared to ETH. There were a lot of VCs, I believe, and you know, people were concerned about like it, you know, the token being centralized amongst like some VCs. Are those issues less prevalent now? And like let me preface it by it seems based on like what I'm seeing on like Twitter and in the media, it seems like they're less prevalent, but I, I just I don't know. So I'm curious as to your opinion. Yeah, look also I would say kind of as an outsider looking in, it seems less prevalent to me as well. I think a few of the issues, as you mentioned in the last cycle, were one, the centralization, because a lot of people kind of called it a VC chain. There was a lot of VCs that made a lot of money just through early in investment. It also kind of had this monkey on its shoulder that was that it, how closely tied it was to Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX based on how they had built their FTX on Solana. And you know, finally, there was the the outages or the the network outages that that had happened in the last market. What I would say is, regardless of all three of those kind of general concerns from the community, Solana seems to have have blasted past all of those concerns, and has been one of the fastest growing assets this bull market thus far. And as I said, developers are flocking to the to the ecosystem. So when your network is tested like this, and you can emerge stronger on the other side, you get this kind of Lindy effect where that can be tough to, to replicate for other chains that haven't really gone through the trials and tribulations that Solana has. So I think, you know, the, the adult saying is, uh, what doesn't kill you, make you strong, makes you stronger. And I think a lot of these concerns that are now starting to be disproven is actually making the Solana ecosystem stronger.
Have the VCs like dumped all their tokens already? Or is it that like people just don't care anymore? You know, like, is it that I, what I'm trying to get at is like, have these problems gotten better or gone away? Or have people just been like, we don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're like running towards it. No, look, I think they've gotten better For, on the first point. There's an unlock schedule whenever VCs invest prior to a token launch. And so uh, there's a vesting schedule. I'm not 100% sure what the vesting schedule looked like for Solana, but I would assume given it started four years ago now, we're probably either at the end or close to the end of that unlock uh, cycle. So I would assume that's less of a risk. The tie-in with Sam Bankman-Fried and the FTX bankruptcy I think that is starting to, that narrative is starting to fall on its face as well, because I think a lot of the asset auction that happened in FTX was already, has already been completed. And then in terms of the outages, I think the network is just so much more robust now. They haven't had outages since the last bull market. And that's when they were really just kind of a trying to find product market fit. And they were an early fun of fledgling company that was immediately blasted with you know a ton of of users and transaction throughput going through the network i mean it's understandable that they they might have had some scaling problems but i think the network is just so much more robust now i haven't seen those concerns started to start to propagate as of yet cool so it sounds like things are getting better things <laughs> things seem to get, be not, getting so better things are getting better it's not just mania there's like genuine improvements happening that's good to hear well if you look at the visa announcement like if that was in a bull market, that would have doubled the price overnight, right? Just the fact that Visa would be settling transactions on Solana is is mind blowing. But it didn't, you know, didn't really move the price at all. And that was only a few months ago. Now I'm starting, uh, I'm starting to see that you know interest is coming back into the space, and I think part of that lag effect is is now starting to be eaten up, and the price dislocation is starting to get smaller and smaller. So you're saying it's never going to go down and I've missed my generational wealth. <laughs> I th- I'm saying mortgage your house, take out lines of credit. No, I'm just kidding. Sell your kids. <laughs> of course not. Sell your kids. Black market. Yeah. No, 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 no. Not financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any like particular DeFi protocol besides like the big ones that we've all heard of that is interesting you on Solana right now? Like, you know, besides like the, you know, Jupiter exchange and stuff like that. You know, we just invested in a protocol called MarginFi um, that is actually really interesting. I think they're merging a few different ecosystems in the, that, you know, if we were to make analogies to Ethereum, they're kind of merging like a stable coin like DAI, like a maker with a Uniswap kind of swap function and a borrow lend protocol like Aave. And they're kind of at, they've, they've created this one almost super app that leverages all three to create this flywheel that incentivizes more TVL and more lending and then more stablecoin pairs that will essentially kind of create this, this flywheel that has already started to bring in massive amounts of, of TVL. I think they did $300 million in uh, transaction volume in a single day a few weeks ago. So they're really pumping kind of firing on all cylinders. And... You know, I think you're right. As this DeFi on Solana narrative starts to gain traction, it's going to be interesting to see these new protocols start to pop up and, and who really kind of wins that race. 300 million is a lot. Um, the total value locked on Solana is 542 million. That's nuts. <laughs> this, is trade, this is trading volume. Mm-hmm. Not, uh, yeah, but I can, I'll send you the tweet. 
I, this is the first time I've really looked at like the TVL on Solana. I'm here. I'll share my yeah, cool. screen here. But this is interesting. We've got like 542 million locked. I don't know why in like you my efforts to look into yeah, it's awesome. In my efforts to look into Solana DeFi, I don't know why I never thought to look at DeFi Llama. For some reason, I kind of just mm. assumed DeFi Llama was only EVM chains. But I mean, there's volume yeah, here. Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much volume shifts over from ETH to Solana or vice versa, right? Like, I mean, it's kind of the the age old saying in finance that capital goes where it's best treated. And, you know, if you have low transaction fees and, you know, a hyper fast network settlement, it's, in, you know, it'll be interesting to see what developers built and kind of how we push the limits of, of what's possible with these kind of new technologies that might be better, faster, stronger than their predecessors. Yeah, there is, especially with DeFi, like the better, faster, stronger really makes a lot of difference. You know, like with anything like CDP based, uh, like MakerDAO, for example, if you were like, mm -hmm. actually they are moving to Solana. So like with, what that means is that like when MakerDAO is on Solana, they're going to be able to allow people to open safes or vaults, whatever they call them with a lot lower of a debt ceiling than they currently have, which means like mm. they're going to have a lot lower of a barrier to entry. Like even retail users with a few hundred bucks in their wallet should be able to open a, a maker vault and like mm. mint some maker. Um, yeah. Because like the reason it's like the debt ceiling is so high usually is because you need to make sure that with gas fees and everything, if this vault were to be liquidated, it's not going to be mm -hmm. a bad debt. So I, I genuinely do think like there will be DeFi products of a higher efficiency on the better, faster, stronger chains. Right. It's how can you argue with capital efficiency when the gas fees are so much higher on one ecosystem than another? It's like you're trying to compete with one hand tied behind your back because you've got this inherent cost just to transact on a network, let alone try and build a, a super capital efficient application or protocol. Can you talk about, like legally, can you talk about how you're personally allocated? I have personal allocation questions for you. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Look, I mean, I have a number of, of investments in private sales in kind of uh, things that we've invested in through Contango. Generally speaking, I believe in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And if I was to give non-financial advice to somebody that was new to the space that wasn't, you know, wasn't necessarily following it on a day to day, I would just say you're pretty safe with Bitcoin. If you want to get a little bit farther down the risk curve, you go to Ethereum. So, I mean, I'm still a holder of, of both of those assets. And I think for anybody that's new to the space, that is always the place to start. As I said, I'm a holder of BitTensor. And I'm also, you know, bullish on Solana and Thorchain. And, you know, aside Thorchain. from that, yeah, I mean, look, later, but... <laughs> yeah, they're, um, they've solved a pretty critical issue, which is Bitcoin to Ethereum swaps native. And even if they just own Bitcoin to Ethereum swaps, or if they own Bitcoin to stablecoin swaps, that in and, in and of itself, as Bitcoin continues to grow, and as more people look for uh, interoperability between EVM and, and Bitcoin, they're the only chain that's found Lindy uh, in that space. So I think there's value there for sure. I didn't hear anything about them last cycle. I heard about them a lot the cycle before, and now it's like they're making a comeback again. I remember seeing the like Rune to 6.9 memes like years ago. <laughs> I think we're... we're we're pretty close there to we're we're pretty close to there if not if not higher time of recording yeah
Uh-huh. So it sounds like you're you're bullish on Solana, but like you're still holding like when you're <clears throat> when it comes to your spot token holdings, you're still mostly like Bitcoin and Ethereum. So you're like pretty similar to me, kind of, in like my positioning. You know, like I'm I'm Solana curious. <laughs> Solana curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you know, generally speaking, I probably am have more of a risk appetite than a lot of investors, just given the nature of, of venture capital and it being risk capital. And even anything in the crypto space is somewhat risk on for a lot of investors, right? So even the Bitcoin and Ethereum would be higher on the risk scale than most people, that a lot of people uh, are, are willing to play. But yes, I, I mean, I do have a decent uh, holding in Bitcoin and Ethereum. I have some alternative L1s that we had, what we had spoken about. I'm pretty stuck into the BitTensor network now. Um, so I've been buying a lot of Tau and kind of just building my position in Tau because I'm really kind of that bullish on what they're doing. I should also mention I'm not affiliated to the BitTensor network or the BitTensor team or um, the OpenTensor Foundation in any way. I'm just uh, very interested in what they're building. So let me give that disclaimer. But building that position and then, yeah, invested also in the, the startup companies that we're funding through Contango as well. Awesome. Yeah, we I think we have similar uh, similar allocations. Mm-hmm, making, mm-hmm. making sure I'm not doing anything stupid, you know. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, that's um, uh, that's always the goal in crypto, right? Yeah. So I know you're not you're not related to you're not endorsing these guys at all or whatever. But how do I how the hell do I buy BitTensor? <laughs> yeah, I mean they could definitely make that a little bit easier. It's a little bit difficult at the moment. There's a there's an exchange called. Uh, tensor.exchange that you can go to. It's it's uh, peer-to-peer OTC. It's available on some centralized exchanges. I know um, Mexi uh, lists it as well. Um, I just had to go to Mexi recently for something else. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So you can buy it there. BitTensor.com, which is run by the Open Tensor Foundation, has a wallet on their on their website. So you can set up a wallet there. And yeah, I think uh, do some diligence, get it, you know, get into the ecosystem, you know, bomb around the discord a little bit. You'll see there's some pretty bright minds. I think what the, the other thing that got me really excited about BitTensor was just seeing the the quality of, I guess, the caliber of people in that ecosystem. It's like, you know, when, when I first found Bitcoin, it was like some of the smartest people in the room, the PhDs, they were all talking about this new technology. And I think the same is true for, for, for BitTensor. It's at a billion dollar market cap already, flown under the radar. Yeah, I don't know if that's their goal or not to kind of fly under the radar until they've built a critical mass, but it's a, it's a pretty interesting project. I think it was only started at the end of 2021. So it hasn't even had a halving cycle yet. If you think about it in Bitcoin terms. Prior to its first having, I'm curious to find out what some of the AI nerds I know think about it. That's, I'm gonna send this to some AI nerds, see what they think, and then uh, I would love, I would love for you to report back. I've been sending it out to a few people uh, in my network as well, and I'm just trying to set up meetings with as many um, you know subnet owners as I can, validators, miners, just trying to get as much kind of information as I can on the on the network. They have these great, there's a YouTube channel called uh, BitTensor Hub, and they post their, their kind of weekly calls, they call it TGIFT. So thank goodness, it's Friday on Thursday. And so they have their their kind of all hands meetings on, on Thursdays, all transparent out in the open, they post it to, to YouTube. So 
you can just listen in, see what some of these other subnets are building and it's pretty impressive, I'd have to say. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. I had a great time learning all about uh, AI and Solana DeFi with you. And I hope to join us again sometime. Likewise, Reza, man. Appreciate you having me on the show and uh, great conversation. Hey, man. Have a great day. Thanks, everyone, right. for watching. <laughs>